Okay, so tonight we're talking, there's uh, handouts up here if you want them. Um, and uh, so tonight we're going to discuss the, the, the fact that we need to be saved. Last week we talked about what it means to be human, and part of that was since the fall, we recognize that we're sinful, that every part of us has been affected by the fall and, and is sinful. And so we find ourselves in this place where we, we need salvation. So let's take a look at our statement of faith real quick. Uh, we believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. So next week we'll look at what we call sola fide, or yeah, sola fide, which is the only grounds for for salvation. But um, week after, <laughs> thank you. No, no, it's, I'm still out of town. Um, so to kind of get at the subject, I think the best way to do it is uh, this verse from uh, Romans, which is called the golden chain. Um, Paul kind of summarizes our, our salvation here. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what I want to do is just kind of use this as like a framework to kind of talk through what it means for us to be saved. Um, so it begins with the word, um, the underlined word there, foreknew, those whom he foreknew. And this is God's foreknowledge. He knows the beginning from the end. Um, he understands what it, everything is. Remember, we talked about uh, uh, divine attributes. He, he has omniscience. He knows it all. There's nothing that, that he isn't aware of. And so he foreknew who he was going to save, this, this foreknowledge. It's, it's something that he knew beforehand. Um, so sometimes people will say, well, his foreknowledge means that he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would have faith in him. And that's what it means that he foreknew them. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, what we'll see is there's a couple of problems if we take that route. Um, but what does the verse actually say God foreknew? He said those whom he foreknew. So it's talking about people, not events necessarily. It's those whom he foreknew. Um, and so, like I said, it's not people. It's, 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 it's people, not actions. And so the word simply means to know beforehand an event. So God knows before it happens. And then the next one is that he predestined. And so when it says that he predestined, it's he foreknew these people, and then he predestined, he predetermined what would happen for them. What would happen with these people? Those he foreknew, he then predestined. And what did he predestined us to do? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew us, he predestined us, and he knew that the son was going to be incarnate, take on a full human nature, and that this is what he wanted the people to be like, was to conform them to the image of his son. Um, so that's, that's predestination. Uh, another word that's used for that is something called election, where God elects uh, people. And so that comes from uh, Romans chapter 9, for example. Uh, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, that's Rachel, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, 
Esau I have hated. So what Paul does is he looks to this example of, of uh, Esau and Jacob. Before they were even born, God had already predestined. He had said, I'm going with Jacob, and um, I'm not going with Esau. Esau is not going to be where the covenant goes. Before they were born, before they could do anything good or bad, make any decisions, they're still in the womb, and he's already made that decision. Uh, so that's, that's Paul's definition of election. This is God sovereignly choosing what he's going to do beforehand. And then uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is the other place where he talks about this. He says, even as he chose us, that's, that's election, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he chose us in Christ from the foundations of the world. That kind of fits with what Paul is saying here. It's, it's almost as if he has a coherent theology, like his thoughts actually make sense. Um, he goes on in uh, Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So this is that idea that, that um, he foreknew, he predestined us, and then Paul says that he chose us in him that his, uh, um, before the foundations of the world. So this is God's pre-planning of what he's going to do to save people. Um, I said that there could be a problem if we try to say God looked down the corridors of time and figured out who he's going to pick and that kind of thing. Um, the problem is they say what God elected, what his choice was, was not individual people, but the position of being in him. I should have put the verse up there. Uh, we were chosen in him. So whoever is in him then is chosen, is the idea. So then anybody could be saved because if you simply are in Christ, then you are predestined to be saved. So it's trying to keep human beings as the ones who make that decision. The problem with that comes in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Paul says, therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may, attain, may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So if the position of being in Christ is elect, then what Paul says in 2 Timothy doesn't make any sense. I do everything for the elect so that they might be saved. If election is those who are saved are now elect, then, then that doesn't work. So it's, it's a difficult one, and we'll talk about some of the difficulties uh, as we go through this a little bit too. Um, so those he foreknew, he predestined, um, and these he predestined, he also called. And so uh, when we talk about his calling, it's something called the effectual call. That means that when God calls somebody that he is foreknown, predestined, and elected, when he calls them, they answer, that they will, just, they will respond. And so we get that idea from... Um, <clears throat> John chapter 10, when um, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they come out to me. And he's talking about, here's this big pen of sheep and all I'm going to do is stand in the front and call and they're going to come out to me. So uh, that's, that's that effectual calling. Those he predestined, he also called. So we, we go out and we preach the gospel to everybody because we're all in that sheep pen. And what we're expecting is his sheep to come out to him as they hear his call, as they hear him uh, beckoning him to salvation. Um, 
and those whom he called, he justified. Uh, justification uh, is this great doctrine. On your handout, I, I, was, I, I got that quote a while ago, and I'm not terribly uh, fond of it. It's, I would tweak it just a little bit. I almost edited it, and I thought, no, it's a quote from somebody else, so we'll let it stand. Um, justification is the opposite of condemnation. That's true. To justify is to pronounce a verdict of innocence. That's not true. Justification, God could just pronounce somebody innocent. To justify them is not to pronounce them innocent. It is to pronounce them righteous. Not just you haven't done anything wrong. It's you are actively good in my eyes. That's what justification is. So it's a little stronger than, than uh, Riken says it at first. But he goes on and he says it right. He says, in justification, the person is not made righteous, but declared righteous. Um, justification is not a process, therefore, but an act. And the reason we say it's an act is because justification uh, is a legal term in Greek. It was when the judge would make a legal declaration. It's not a process where you turn somebody into something else. It is a legal declaration at its root. Um, so it's not the impartation of righteousness through faith plus works and sacraments, as some theologians have tried to claim, but an imputation of righteousness by faith alone. So we'll talk about that next week, because next week we're going to talk about sola fide, um, being justified by faith alone. But the idea of justification is, based on something else, God looks at us and says, not only innocent, actively righteous. And that other thing is in him. It's in Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us. God can look at us and say, this is, this is the right person. This is the person that is good in my eyes. They're, they've done everything that they should have done, even though we don't. So that's what we were saying yesterday in the sermon is um, God looks on the righteous. That's not us. That's Jesus. And so as we're in Jesus, then he looks on us and he sees us to be righteous. Uh, so he calls, he justifies, and those he justified, he also glorified. Um, why is that in the, in the past tense? We're not glorified yet. What glorified means is that final state where our bodies are resurrected, sin and death and hell and Satan and all that opposes us are put away. Uh, our bodies are made new and we are going to be actually sinless. We, we will not be sin, sinning anymore. Um, that's to be glorified, to be conformed to the image of Christ in the fullness. So why would Paul say, why would he put it in the past tense here? I think what he's doing is I think he's, he's got this chain going in his mind. And so when he gets to this last one, he says, if, if God foreknew you, if God predestined you, if he has predestined you to be conformed to his image, and he's called you and he's justified you, then is there any chance you're not being glorified? I think he, he left it in the, in the past tense just because it's like it's just this line of thought. This is how it goes. Um, so that's, that's kind of what is going on with this is, is this golden chain, this, this linkage like this, it's, it's so secure because what are we doing in all of this? Well, it's all about what God's doing. It's not all about us. And so that's, that's the security. That's the sureness of it. Um, this idea, though, of being conformed to the image of the Son, that's a, something that we call sanctification. And uh, we'll talk more about sanctification next week. But what sanctification, it comes from the word sanctus, which is Latin for holy. And sanctification is to be made holy. Uh, what we understand that to mean is to be conformed to Jesus' image, to be made more like him. 
And so when you look in the New Testament, you say, what is, what is sanctification? Well, Hebrews 10.14. Somebody look this up. Yeah, have you guys got Bibles handy? A couple of people? Did I put it? Oh, no, I put it on the slides. Never mind. Don't look in your Bibles. <laughs> put it on the slides. For by a single offering, he, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So sanctification is a process that we're in. We are being sanctified. It's happening now. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. And then in Romans 6.22, but, that, uh, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification will be something that we are in the end. So it's interesting how the New Testament talks about sanctification as something we have achieved, something we're in the process of, and something that we will arrive at in the end. Um, and it's because when we are saved and we're, we're in faith and we're in Christ, we have been sanctified. We have been set aside and made holy. But that's not all the way through us yet. It's a process that, that's going on. And so when we talk about sanctification in this way, um, you can have a surety. You can say, I have been sanctified. That's Romans 10, 14. It's, it has happened. I have been declared to be holy. But God is still working on me. I'm not conformed to the image of Christ yet. And so I'll have good days and bad days. I'll, I'll, I'll grow in sanctification and sins will fall away and sometimes I'll fall back into them and struggle with them. And so... This sanctification is this process that God is leading us through. But in the end, we will be fully sanctified. We will be absolutely like him. And, and that's the hope that we have as we're in the middle, as we're in the struggle now, is we have the sure thing that we have been sanctified and the sure goal that we're going to get there. And in the middle, it's just kind of rough. We just have this, this battle back and forth. So I will often joke about, like, I, you guys missed it. I stopped at Taco Bell. And I just wanted two tacos and a burrito supreme. The lady in front of me wanted to have a conversation. So she was there forever. And I was beginning to lose some sanctification points because I was like, could you hurry up, please? Get a little grumpy. And, and um, so I, that's our joke. Lisa and I were like, we, we lost a couple of sanctification points there. I just kind of, kind of backed off a little bit. But here's the good news. It is the will of God for your sanctification. That's what God's will is for us, is that we be sanctified. So um, the other thing that was in there, I don't think it was on this. It's implied um, in this. The other thing that, that happens to us is something called adoption, where we are adopted into God's family. Jesus is to be the firstborn amongst many brethren. And so as God brings us into his family, as he sanctifies us, as he justifies us, as he makes us holy, he adopts us as his children. And so the spirit within us calls out, Abba, Father, calls to God as our father. And so that's that family relationship. So Jesus, our big brother, is the one that made the way for us. God, the father, now is the father. If you look through the Old Testament and try to find how many times God is called father, I think there's only two. It's just not a common theme. Look through the New Testament. God is repeatedly called father. It's because the, the coming of Jesus made it possible for us to be adopted into the family. Um, so that word uh, uh, Abba, I've heard people say, that's daddy. That's us, that's us calling God daddy. Well, first of all, it's not us. It's the Holy Spirit. 
that's that's what it says is the spirit within us calling him, uh, uh, calls him uh, Abba. And second of all, Abba is not daddy. It's not a gibberish kind of thing. It's a word for father. Uh, Hebrew, the, fa- the word for father in Hebrew is Ab. So Abba is, is kind of like daddy in that sense. It sounds that repetitive thing and little kids would use it. But it's also used of, uh, from older folks. And so it's got a, an element of respect in it as well. So um, it, it's still a great privilege that we're able to call him Abba, father, but it's not daddy. It's, it's a little bit more respectful than that. Um, but it's still our father. I, I still think that's pretty awesome. Um, I had a, a friend that went to the um, Spanish-speaking Christian church, and she equated Abba to, like, um, the uh, Hispanic family calling their grandmothers, like, abuelita. Like, mm-hmm. it's still respectful, mm-hmm. but it's like that kinship, like, a little bit, I don't know, like, like, like more, yeah, like, like you're my abuelita, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So would that be fair to say, like, in that sense? No, I think it's probably a better one because it still recognizes the relationship, but it does have a sense of affection and familiarity with it. So when we call God Abba, um, it is it still has those same elements of familiarity and closeness, but also still a respecting of, you know, he's not not one of us kind of thing, you know, just a bozo on the bus or whatever that song was. so that's that's the process by which we're saved. Um, next week we'll talk about, or week after, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting we're going to be out of town. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about being saved by faith alone. Why is that such tremendous news? But um, I just wanted to go through these things real quick and show this is um, this is what the good news is, is that God has done these things. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Where do we go? And I said um, we're conformed to his image. So Romans 8.29, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So you want to see what you're going to look like, what it's going to be like for you in, in eternity, look at Jesus. Um, 1 John 3.2, behold, we are God's children now. You've been adopted. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So that's that idea that we, we've been adopted, but we haven't been fully integrated into the family yet. We're, we're, we're still waiting for that glorification. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when Jesus appears, when he returns, all of his people will see him. And that's when we will be glorified. We will be made like him because we'll see him as he is. And I just can't wait for that. <laughs> Please. Now, can we, could we do that now? Just, you know, make it all go away. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with a veiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we said sanctification is an ongoing process too, right? We are being conformed or transformed into that image. Um, It's something that's going on now. Where it's happening for us now is internally, in our our minds and in our our spirit. Um, But in the end, when we see him as he is, then we'll be transformed completely. Body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, all of that, to be just like him. So how do we get saved? How is it, what does Jesus do for us? And so I just want to throw a couple of uh, verses up here for, for, to begin to discuss this question. 
For our sake, he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus takes our sin on himself. He, he, he became sin. He, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that's called imputation. That is uh, the imputation that we get. We get Jesus' righteousness applied to us. To make that happen, he took our sin to himself. Because God doesn't just wink at sin and go, it's okay now. It's, there, there's, there is an offense that must be answered. And so Jesus is the one who did that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So he, as he is crucified, our sins are with him there and being punished. He has taken the, the punishment that our sins deserve um, on the tree, on the cross. And then Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right? He became a curse for us because where Paul goes next with this is he says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. That's what the law says. And that's exactly how Jesus died. He was hung on a tree. He was nailed to a cross. And so he became that curse, the, 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 the bad news of the law saying you are unrighteous and you deserve this. Jesus says, I'll take that curse to me and I'll pay for it fully. And then he was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. Um, by his stripes, we are healed. So why did Jesus die if he was perfectly righteous and innocent? For us. He, he died to take our sin, to take our curse. Um, so this is what we call, technically it's called um, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal is a penalty, substitution, he's standing in our place, and that's how the atonement is made. Atonement's kind of an interesting word. It's uh, an English invention, and it was a way of explaining a, a word in the Bible. And what it means is at one. So to be atoned is at one meant, to be made one with. So how are we united with Christ? How are we reunited with God? Through Jesus making atonement for us. So that's, that's that idea of penal substitutionary atonement. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. It's the great exchange. Um, tremendous news, by the way. I think that's, that's great because we don't have to go tell somebody, well, if you just get your act together, God might save you. Like, nope. You're never going to get your act together. Get saved now. Um, there are other theories of atonement. Um, some people, when they hear about uh, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, they say, well, that's divine, or that's cosmic uh, child abuse. God took his son and, and beat him for, he didn't do anything wrong. That's child abuse. That's, that's out of God's character. Um, and uh, so they, they go with other theories of atonement. Uh, one is called um, Christus Victor. And the idea is that Jesus has gone and he's defeated all of our enemies by dying on the cross. Um, and you get some scripture that supports some of that. Uh, he disarmed powers and principalities and rulers through dying on the cross. He denied Satan his greatest weapon, which is a fear of death, because he came and he broke death. And so they would say that's more in line with God's character as he came and defeated our enemies, not that he was punished for us. And so when I hear that, I just go, but what do you do with this? If I believe in penal substitutionary atonement, I believe this and what you're saying. I don't have to throw out Christus Victor. Um, there's another one called the appeasement theory, which I don't think anybody hangs to it anymore. It's there was a debt owed because of sin, and somebody had to pay it. And we can't pay it. So Jesus paid the debt for the sin. 
that sounds like atonement, like substitutionary atonement, but what they would say is the debt was owed to death or to Satan. And so Jesus died to pay Satan what was owed him. And I can't get there. I can't figure out any way in the Bible to get to that point. Um, in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan um, steps in because uh, Edmund has broken the law. He's, he's betrayed his friends. He's under the witch's spell with this Turkish delight. And so the, wit, the white witch says, the law says, the, the, the deep magic says that someone, he has to pay. He's mine. And Aslan steps in and goes, there's a deeper magic you don't understand, and I'll take his place. And so Aslan steps in to atone for, to take the place of Edmund. Um, and I used to get really upset about that because I thought the white witch was uh, Satan. And somebody went, no, that's death. She's death. That's why it's always winter when she's around. It's, it's the ice cold, icy coldness of death. Um, but still, I, I don't see anywhere where Satan is owed anything. What does he get in the end? He gets chucked in a lake of fire. That's what he's owed. So that, that's another, uh, another atonement theory. Um, one that comes mostly from Roman Catholics, I think, is um, a moral, um, what's it called, moral example, moral exemplar is we should live more like Jesus. And Jesus loved so much that he was willing to die for other people. And when Lisa and I were Roman Catholics, that idea drove us nuts. How am I supposed to do that? If I don't get crucified, I'm not going to get saved? And wait a minute. The problem is Jesus was crucified with two other dudes. So why aren't they both saved? One was and one wasn't. This, this idea of this moral exemplar, he's going to set the, the mood for us or set the example for us. Again, no scriptural support, and there's some real logical problems with it. Is uh, I, I'm, nobody's going to get crucified today? Well, in the Middle East, they're crucifying some people, but I mean, generally speaking, they're not going to crucify people anymore. So that moral exemplar thing doesn't work particularly well. Um, also, it begs the question of uh, Hebrews. Right? Hebrews talks about Jesus as the high priest and the sacrifice. So if the sacrifice in the Old Testament happened that um, to pay the debt. Go back and look at it. The, the priest would come and put his hands on the head of the, the goat that was to be offered and confess the sins of Israel over it. And if it was a sin, a, a sin offering, the person who brought the offering would do that, put his hands on the head of the goat, and then they would sacrifice it. So that is that picture of Jesus becoming sin for us, taking it on. So I think the Old Testament tends to um, mirror that penal substitutionary atonement as well. Um, uh, any questions, comments on this stuff? It's going pretty quick, and there's a lot there. And... Um, I think what they would say is they just they would go, well, he's he's. Um, it's usually Christus Victor is usually the um, the other model in Protestantism, is they would say, well, yeah, that means he's he became sin so that he could uh, defeat sin. So uh, he he by dying he defeated death, and by taking sin on himself he defeated sin, and so he's victor over these things. They have no power over you now, and so if you know sin is calling to you, you know that it's a defeated foe, and and again I I don't have a problem with that. That's that's True, 
But it's not just because he died because of sin. It was he took my sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, I am healed. I think it's more, Christus Victor is good, but it doesn't go far enough, is the way I would say it. Yeah. So they can answer that, but I don't think it really fits the picture particularly well. It's just, I don't like penal substitutionary atonement because I would not be thought righteous if I threw my child out in front of a car to save somebody else. It's like, yeah, but your child is not Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, either. (laughs) He wasn't predestined to go jump in front of a car to save somebody. Um, And it's not like Jesus was like, I don't want to do this. You know, he, he said, if there's any other way, Lord, but your will be done. You know what's right. Separating the father and the son in a way that you can split their character differently. To to argue against penal substitutionary atonement, they weren't of a similar will at that point. If you're arguing for Christus Victor, then the justification for that is that the father wouldn't abuse the son because that's out of his character, but both of them willingly stepping in. Mm. Like, you would have to separate them in order for it to be an abuse of the relationship. Yeah, they would have to have different wills, and the son would have to subordinate himself to that will and say, I'll take it, even though I think it's horrible, I'll do it because you want me to. Yeah, I I think there's problems there. There, Somebody tweeted around Easter, and I read it, and I went, no, and then I kept bugging me. I kept going back and going, wait a minute, (laughs) there's something going on here. They were saying, if you preach on Easter that God the Father turned away from God the Son on the cross, and that God the Father poured his wrath out on Jesus on the cross, God the Son on the cross, um, and then, you know, so the God the Son is standing between you and God the Father uh, to protect you from his wrath. That's not, that's dividing up the, the Trinity. And he said Jesus himself was pouring his wrath out on the cross as well. I'm like, wait, <laughs> I get it, but I'm not sure I get it quite yet. So uh, the idea is we're not going to divide the Trinity up and say the Trinity is now split. God the Father has wrath. God the Son doesn't have. God the Son takes the wrath of the Father so that he can save people. The Trinity is united in Jesus on the cross. And so the Son pours his wrath out on this. It's not that the Father turned away from the Son. Um, And I'm like, yeah, but Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you... Uh, abandoned me. So God abandoned him. And if you don't want to say God the Father abandoned God the Son at that point, then you've got Jesus in split in two. God the Son turns against Jesus. So the two persons are now divided. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that work. I don't think that solves it any anymore either. It's just Trinitarian theology gets this way. It gets really dodgy because you're trying to keep things together that look like they're going apart or something. And, ah. <laughs> You throw the kid out, and all of a sudden the car just crushes when it hits him. Yeah, he destroys the car. That car will never hurt another person. 
Yeah, that, that car will never hurt another person because your son destroyed it. Yeah. Right. So then what did Jesus, the man on the cross, mean when he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does he mean that his divine nature has forsaken his human nature? So that's where you get you, you're going to wind up either in problems in the Trinity or in the, uh, the incarnation. And it's, it's just difficult. So I want to go back. I've got to go back and read that tweet thread again. It was about maybe five or six tweets. But I was like, almost there's something going on there. I just can't quite put my finger on what it is. And then um, the other question that I, I think is helpful at this point, um, when we talk about election and predestination and effectual calling and those kind of things, that's, that's what is unfortunately referred to as Calvinism. Um, it wasn't invented by John Calvin. Um, Calvin said a lot of things, quoted a lot of the church fathers, Bas uh, not Basil, let's see, I can't remember the guy's name, and Augustine. It's actually Augustinian, but Augustine didn't invent it either. He quoted Paul. And he's, he's looking to Pauline uh, methods of theology. And Paul didn't make it up either. He quoted Jesus. You know, he's, he's, this is just biblical theology is to say Calvinism. The other really unfortunate thing about Calvinism is, have you ever heard the five points of Calvinism? Calvinism is the idea that God predestines. He chooses before the foundations of the world who will be saved. And then he ensures that they are saved. He does what it takes to make that person saved. Um, the opposite of Calvinism is something called Arminianism. And there was a, uh, this all happened in the Dutch Reformed Church in the 1500s. Uh, there was a teacher named Arminius, and he had some ideas about salvation. And um, after he died, his students, the, the people he had taught, uh, wrote what was called a remonstrance. They wrote to the, the church and said, we deny these things. And so the church got together and said, let's take a look at this. And they went through and they answered those five points. And so this is where we get what's called the five points of Calvinism. Um, it's, it's not because it's the best representation of Calvinism. It's because this is what people denied. And so what they denied is, first of all, what we call total depravity. We talked about last week. There's no part of your human being, no function of, of you as a human being that was not broken by sin. So that's it, unfortunate to call it total depravity because it sounds like I'm just as Stark raving evil as I can be at all times. And it's just not true. What it means is complete, complete sinfulness. Every portion, your reasoning, your emotions, your, um, your desires, your heart, your, your mind, all of you has been affected by sin. So it's a, a complete one. And then um, unconditional election. So we talked about election. God, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Um, what the Arminians said was um, it, the election was not unconditional. God had looked down and he saw who would have faith in him, and that's who he decided to choose. And so the, the, the Dutch church said, no, there's really no scriptural support for that. There's nothing that says God picked somebody because they picked him. They would pick him. Um, it is unconditional election. It is, I have just decided this is who I'm going um, so, uh, to save. So total depravity, unconditional election. Then the issue I wanted to bring up is uh, what they call limited atonement, which, again, is a terrible way to say it. It's particular redemption. And so the idea is 
um, when Jesus died to pay for sins, he paid for the sins of the elect. So those who would be saved, their sins are completely and totally paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. Um, so it's particular redemption. It is, I'm, I'm dying to save these people. Um, the problem, the problem with, with limited atonement or particular redemption is people go, well, um, it, the, the Calvinists will say, well, then, then Jesus didn't shed a drop of blood for anybody but the elect. That's, that, that isn't true. Colossians 1.19 says, God is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of the cross, things on heaven or on an earth um, uh, and under the earth. So in some fashion, Jesus shed blood for everything. Um, when John the Baptist sees him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the elect, who takes away the sins of the world. So in some way, Jesus' uh, atonement touches everybody. But for the elect, it is effective for their salvation. So it will be applied to the elect in a way that won't be applied to the non-elect, that they will be saved. They, they will be. It's, it's a sure thing. Um, so I prefer particular redemption that, that he did that. Now, if you go with general redemption, that Jesus paid for the sins of all people of all time ever, then why do people go to hell? Their sins have been paid for. Well, they didn't accept the gift. Well, it doesn't matter if they accept the gift. The, the debt has been paid. The bill has been paid in full. And so that's why I go, that's not a good answer either, general redemption. It, it, it's got to be particularly general. Does that make sense? I just made that up. Um, there's a great book by D.A. Carson called the, uh, the Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And what he says in there is he looks at where, wherever it says who God loves. And the problem is he loves the elect. And he loves them and he saves them. But it also says, for God so loved the world. And so he can love the world, including those who are not elect, on whom his wrath is, is, is uh, focused. So he can love them and have wrath for them at the same time. Because God's love is a difficult doctrine. So that's particular redemption is saying um, his, his, salva his salvation or his, his atonement for the elect is effective for their salvation. To you, L. Limited atonement, irresistible grace, that effectual calling. Um, the, uh, the Arminians said, well, you can, God can shed his grace on you and you can resist that. You can turn away from that. So you could hear his call. You could understand the message of salvation and feel the spirit drawing you and still go, yeah, I don't want that. And what the, um, the church said in response to that is, no, when God calls somebody, what the Bible says is his sheep hear his voice and they come out to him. Not some of them will come out to him or most of them will come out to him. It's if my sheep hear my voice, they come. So they unfortunately call it irresistible grace. But what it is is when you're born again and you have a new spirit and your eyes are open and you see what Jesus has done and you recognize the beauty of that, God did this. He loved me so much that he did this to make it possible for me to be saved. There's no human heart in the world that would go, I don't want that. This is that. It's, the problem is people, because of sin, can't see that or don't believe it. And so that's, that's what we mean by irresistible grace is um, not God is going to drag somebody kicking and screaming into heaven. And you can't resist me. It's, this is the normal state. Any non-sinful person would love to hear this. But some he has to wake up so that they'll hear that and recall and answer the call. So it's irresistible because it's so beautiful. And um, 
total depravity, limited atonement, TU, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, oh, and perseverance of the saints. So what the uh, Arminians said was you could get saved, you could actually be saved, have a regenerate heart, uh, be sealed with the Holy Spirit, and turn away and say, I don't want it, and you could fall away and lose your salvation. And so what they, the, the church did is they looked at the scriptures again and they said, that's not what Jesus said. He said, um, they're in my hand and none can pluck them out. And, and that, you know, some people go, yeah, but you can crawl out. It's like, no, that's not the metaphor. <laughs> the metaphor is my sheep are in the palm of my hand and I'm not going to lose one of them. As a matter of fact, he says, uh, they're mine. I, I won't lose one of them except for the son of perdition. Judas, who was predestined to go this way, that's the only one who will be lost. Um, and so that's what we mean by uh, um, perseverance of the saints is not once saved, always saved. You hear that sometimes. I hate that term because what it sounds like is, well, you're saved. And now you can do whatever you want. And, and that's, not the, that's not the message of salvation. The message of salvation is God has woken you up. He has given you a new heart. He has opened your eyes. He's removed the blinders of sin. And now because you have this new heart, what um, what um, uh, Jeremiah says is that he writes his law on your heart. And so now your, your desires, your affections are turned. They were twisted inward and God is now beginning to turn them back to himself. And so if he's done these works in you, if he's done all of these things, it can't be that you would just go, yeah, well, I don't want any of that now. It, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. He's going he's gonna to work to keep you saved. So it's not once saved, always saved. It is a thorough salvation that doesn't just happen once when you make a profession. It's something that God is continuing to work in you, that, that idea that sanctification is a process. Um, that, that's part of that. So they, they announce it as TULIP, these five letters. A terrible way to explain it. Just absolutely horrible. Um, because it was an answer to denials by people who didn't believe it. <laughs> What's a better way to say it is, is God has secured the salvation of his people. Jesus came to die that many might be saved. And so we have a sureness. We have a surety in salvation. The other accusation against Calvinists is Calvinism kills missions. Because if they're elect, then God will save them. And there are what are called hyper-Calvinists who would say, well, if God wants to save them, he's going to have to drag them into church and bring them in here. Because if we go out and we pronounce to people, you could be saved and they're not elect. We're lying to them. Boy, that'd be terrible. And that, that's just this horrible idea of, of uh, a distortion of Calvinism. And so people who don't believe it say it kills missions, except John Calvin planted churches. He sent some missionaries out to, um, to the, uh, the New World. He planted churches in France that got to be 3,000 people. Not because he, was, he thought, well, God will save the elect, therefore I don't have to do anything. He was sending people out to do this. The modern missionary movement, most of the people in the modern missionary movement that was from the um, 1700s, 1800s on, were Calvinists. They went because they said, the elect are out there and we've got to go find them. So what we do is we go out and we speak Jesus' words and his sheep come out to them. So it doesn't kill missions, it empowers missions. You can't fail. You can't fail. Go out and preach the gospel, and you can't lose, because if you preach the gospel, they'll hear his voice, and they'll come out to him. You, you can't lose. So if somebody, I heard a guy on the radio here in the Valley years ago 
somebody, it was a local church was doing a radio program and somebody called and said, I, I witnessed to my neighbor and I didn't do a very good job. I think I, used, I didn't use the right words. And, and, and they said they don't believe and now they died and, and they're in hell and it's my fault. And I thought, you've got to give her the truth. That person is not in hell because you didn't share the right, the, the right words with them. You did what you had to do. And so they didn't. He was like, oh, well, you know, you, you try and you do your best. I'm like, no, you're not helping this poor person. Um, that person is in hell because they chose not to believe, because God hadn't opened their eyes. They were doing what they were going to do. So um, that's why I jokingly say I'm a seven-point Calvinist. Um, there's the five points. I believe those, properly termed and, and conditioned. But I also believe in what was called uh, the best possible world. I think I mentioned this the other day. Is the way the world is now is is bad. There's sin, there's death, there's disease, there's destruction. But it is the way that it is because it will give God the maximum amount of glory in eternity. Not that it's perfect and it's wonderful now, but through this brokenness, through this disease and everything, it will give God the maximum amount of glory in eternity. We will, When we get to heaven and we're with him and we review the story, we go over all of the stories, we'll go, that was just amazing. So it's best of all possible worlds. And then um, something called double predestination, which sounds really horrible, but uh, I can't get any around it anyway. If God chose to save these people, called the elect, then he chose not to save the reprobate, the non-elect. Um, he actively works to save the elect, but it's not like he actively works to damn the non-elect. They're in that state. So it's double predestination. In other words, I chose this person. And by default, I did not choose that person. So it's still because of his choice. Um, it's difficult. It, it, it's a tough one. Um, but I just can't get to the point where I go, well, he chose some. And therefore, the others are just doing whatever they want. Like, yeah, but he didn't choose. He didn't do something. He could have said, I'm going to save every human being that has ever lived. And he didn't. And so that's double predestination. Is uh, God is really in charge of all this stuff. So my, my simple way of saying Calvinism is I just say God does stuff on purpose. I think is the best way to say it. So why does this happen? Because God does stuff on purpose. He, he does it that way. Like, um, what about you? Oh, you were going to bring that up, aren't you? It's not a tangent. It's just difficult for me, so I don't want to do it. Okay. <laughs> so... Um, this, I think I mentioned this before. Grant Osborne was one of my seminary professors. Uh, Arminian, or, uh, egalitarian, believes women can be pastors and stuff. I couldn't disagree with him on more stuff if I tried. And he taught me some of the best lessons from, in seminary. And one of them was, don't just say the easy passages interpret the difficult ones. And he said, the reason is, I'm an Arminian, and there are passages that give me fits. For you Calvinists, those are easy and the ones that I like give you fits. So if you only interpret in the light what you already believe, you're only going to believe what you already believe. So here's, here's the question, Hebrews 6. Um, let's look that up. I want to read it just to make it clear. And I got a song stuck in my head, too. Don't disturb this groove by the system. Don't disturb this groove. 
I was listening to it in the drive-thru because I had forever while the person in front of me was taking their time. Hebrews, there we go, 12. See, this is why you get an electronic Bible. You don't have to do what I'm doing right now, which is the pages are not turning where I want them to. So here's what it says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying-ons of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what he says is, it is impossible to restore somebody when they have um, tasted the heavenly gift, when they've shared in the Holy Spirit, when they've tasted the goodness of the world to come and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Hebrews says you can't restore them. So does that mean that they have been saved and fallen away? The question really is, is apostasy a real possibility? Could a genuinely born-again person? So because I'm going to interpret the hard passages like this in light of the ones that are easy for me, (laughs) uh, what I'm going to do is I want to pay attention to the wording here. Um, He says, uh, those who have been enlightened. So what does it mean to be enlightened? Um, if you've heard the word preached, you have been enlightened. Even if you don't believe it, you, you hear it. Um, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've sampled it. They've nibbled at it. And have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've got a little bit of the Holy Spirit. So this is somebody who is in the church and looks to everybody like they are genuinely saved, but they've never connected. They've never closed. They've sampled this. They've tasted that. But they haven't been sealed in the Holy Spirit. And they haven't been uh, given the, whole, the, the, the great gift. They, they understand the, the promise of the coming age. But it just doesn't click with them. They just go, through, go to church because that's what feels right. So the language is, is, is careful. And so what you have to do is say, this is somebody who is as saved as they could possibly be without being saved. They've, got it. they've gotten all the things that they've had, they could have. They've, they've been enlightened. They have heard the, the message. They've heard the scriptures. They've lived in that over and over again. They've tasted. They've got an idea that there's, there's a, a future coming. And, and all that you can do for them, you, you can labor in the church and do everything for this person, and eventually they just fall away because it never clicked with them. They never closed with Christ. The one that's even more difficult for my, my seven-point Calvinism, see if I can find it real quick, is I think it's Hebrews 11. Oh, sure, yeah. And shared in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Saul. When Saul was king and he disobeyed God and didn't kill the people he was told to kill, God took his spirit from Saul. So he, he had tasted the Holy Spirit. He wasn't sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he placed that spirit on David. So Saul was one who God had taken his spirit away and put an evil spirit on him. So there's an example of somebody who could, and it's not the sealing of the spirit that we would experience as, as New Testament believers, but it was the spirit was at work in this person and then left them. 
Um, I would argue some of the, the judges fit into that category. I'm not totally sure we'll see Samson in heaven. Um, he did about everything wrong he possibly could have. And yet the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he did wonderful things. But he was really a pretty lousy judge. He was supposed to be a, um, a Nazarite. And yet he he um, grabs the, the jawbone of an ass and kills people with it. Well, you're not supposed to touch something dead if you're a Nazarite. He gets his hair cut off. You're not supposed to cut your hair if you're a Nazarite. He gets married to Jezebel. You're not supposed to marry a foreign woman. And he did everything wrong. And yet, in the end, God you know, used him. So there, I think there's examples where the Holy Spirit could be on somebody and working in them and then depart from them. So um, one of the early church questions was something called the lapsi. Um, a priest, they used to call them priests. We would say they're pastors. Um, priests would face persecution and were told, uh, all you have to do is put a pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar and you'll be okay. That was a form of worship. That is worshiping Caesar as putting incense on the altar. So what happened was there were a bunch of people that fell away like that. They, they couldn't endure the pressure, and so they made the sacrifice. And when the persecution ended, the emperor dies, and, and now they come back. The question came up in the church, what do we do with these people? And the real question was, what do we do with the people that the Lapsi have baptized? Do they need to be baptized again? Because does their baptism count? Because they fell away. They, they turned away from the faith. And so it was a really big issue for the church. The good news is the church said, well, no, it that's not the point. God was using them at the time, and then they fell away. So the baptism is not dependent on the person. It, the baptism works because the baptism works. It's because of what God does in baptism, not what we do or who does it. So you could be baptized by somebody who turns out to be apostate. And it, as long as it was done the right way, you're still baptized. You don't have to go get baptized again. So that's that idea of tasting in the Holy Spirit um, or participating, having some role in the Spirit, but it's just not salvation in the way we would understand it to be sealing. When Paul's talking about people being saved, he uses much stronger terms for what happens with them rather than tasting and, and uh, sampling the Spirit and that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? I kind of wasn't too, like, in a way, like how you say, like, they're a person who's like, appear saved via church and, and the way that they share with the Holy Spirit is as there are faithful saints in the church and they are you know preaching the word or sharing the word and that they have wisdom and revelation come through the, the spirit and they're receiving that same wisdom or even prayer or healings and whatever it mm -hmm. be they're still seeing that and still not fully believing but they're still participating in all that the the real church of believers is doing it. They're sharing in that, that spirit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when we talk about the church, we're going to talk about the church God sees and the church we experience. And there's a part of the church we experience that is not the church God sees. And those are the people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? Well, that's not humanly possible that it would benefit the saints. It's God's word, the spirit applying it, the spirit's working. But away from me, I never knew you. And so that's where I think uh, Hebrews 6 fits in there. There's another one. I can't find it right off the top of my head. I don't remember. I thought it was uh, 10 or 11. It's not 11 for sure. Uh, where it talks about um, they've trampled underfoot the blood of Christ that sanctified them or something along those lines. 
and that's the one that gives me fits. I'm like, uh, I don't know if that fits into that category of some way Jesus died for everybody, um, but that one sure sounds like somebody who has been sealed by the, you know, washed with the blood of Christ, then tramples it underfoot and loses their salvation. Um, Ten twenty-nine. I, I knew it was in that neighborhood. Can you read that real quick before? It... Yeah, he's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So it's not it's not external to the covenant. It is the blood of the covenant that somehow sanctified this person. That's the one that really gets gets me, keeps me up at night. Um, well, we're following from verse 26, though. We're talking about going on sinning deliberately. Yeah, so maybe it is that category from uh, Hebrews 6, that I mean, person. The way that I've usually read that passage is that it's a warning to... In the same vein as we shouldn't keep sinning, mm. grace should abound. Mm-hmm. We should focus on trying to not sin as best as we can to avoid basically spitting on God's grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing is you could look at these and say these are terrifying verses. They're really scary. And they should be scary. And so maybe God uses verses like this to say, you saints, I'm preserving you. Don't do this. The, the consequences are real. If you were to fall away, this, is, this might be one of the ways in which God preserves us, is, is by scaring us to death with this stuff, to go, I could trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. How terrible would that be? Um, so that's, that's the other thought, is it could be these are actual live threats, and therefore, God gives them to us to keep us from transit to from keep to keep us from going across that line to say, I'm not going to go on sinning deliberately. I'm going to wrestle with that and, and make sure I don't do that. So um, that's Calvinism. <laughs> Again, I don't like the name Calvinism. Um, Peter has, has thrown some Calvinist stuff at us at the beginning of first Peter. He talks about uh, God foreknowing us and and. Uh, and choosing us in him and those kind of things. So it's it's just biblical theology. And so poor John Calvin gets saddled with it and beaten up over it. And, you know, um, there was a big fight years ago in the Southern Baptist Church over Calvinism. The Southern Baptist Convention said there were people saying that's not Baptist. That That's not Baptist theology. And uh, so there's a group called the Founders, which goes back and looks at the people who started the Southern Baptist Convention and goes, this guy was a Calvinist, and this guy was a Calvinist, and this guy was a Calvinist. It, it was part of Baptist theology. But usually what, what happens is um, people who are opposing Calvinism oppose the worst version of it. And I would probably join them in, in opposing it as well, because it's like a distorted, not healthy way of doing it. Um, that, that idea of hyper-Calvinism. If, if I preach to somebody who's not elect and tell them they could be saved, I'm lying. Like, well, then don't say you could be saved. <laughs> say, Jesus died for sinners. And if, if you want to be saved, trust in him. And that's absolutely true. There's nothing wrong with that. Whether you say it to an elect or a non-elect person, it's, it's totally true. So the other thing is that, um, 
the people who oppose Calvinism think that God is stiff-arming some people. You're not elect, you can't come in. And the person's going, but I want to be saved. Nope, too bad. And again, that goes back to the first one, right? Total depravity. That person doesn't want to be saved. They want to be their own God in some way or form. So um, there's distortions of it and, and disagreements on it and stuff. Um, and I can point you to some books that uh, challenge Calvinism if you want. Um, Norm Geisler wrote one. Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of it. I just I can picture the cover of the book, but I can't read the words off of it. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound familiar. So he has his theology, called provisionism. And so I've only heard a little bit of him. He said he's, he's not Arminianism, but he's not a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. Kind of like he's like I don't want to call myself a three-point Calvinist because I think I'm fitting that. But this kind of almost, kind of what I kind of got the gist of him was like, yes, we can't be saved without God, because God provided everything that we need to be saved. But there's still this spot that we have to save. Hmm. And so he makes kind of an argument based on that. I heard Charles Stanley say that on the radio one time. God has done everything He can to save you. Now it's up to you. Yeah. And the idea is, we have to have free will. We have to freely be able to choose to be saved. And um, that's the, the Calvinistic, again, doctrine of compatibilism, that in, in God's understanding, it is totally compatible that a human being could be absolutely free, have a free will. They can do what they want, what is in accordance with their nature, and yet God could know that they will be saved and, and ensure that they will be saved freely because they free. Because I've had this discussion with, with other folks, too, is God does choose and God does save. But you have to believe, right? It's not like you just sit by idly and go, oh, wake up one morning and go, oh, I guess I'm saved now. Is You have to hear the gospel. You have to believe that Jesus died to save you. And so we do have a role in it. But the good news is God has already secured that, and it will happen, and he will ensure that, that we are brought to that place. So like my story is I heard the gospel a bunch of times growing up. Um, I was in Roman Catholic Church, but... Every summer, my mom would dump me at my grandparents' farm just to get me out of the house. <laughs> and uh, so I would work with my grandpa and, and do construction stuff. And my, my grandparents went to a Nazarene church. And one year when I was there, their pastor just, I don't know why, he took a liking to me. He just was really nice to me. He was a good guy. And um, so when I would go to church, I would be, you know, we'd be in the service and I would go, he's going to cry in three, two, one. There he goes. He's crying. You know, you could just tell he was going to do it. And every week he's presenting the gospel and he's just pleading with people, please trust in Jesus Christ because uh, Nazarenes are, are, are Arminian. So they believe that, you know, this is up to you to do. So Pastor Tucker was just passionate about it. So I heard the gospel a number of times, but it didn't click. It wasn't until I heard somebody else tell me it and told me to read the Bible and I started reading through the book of Acts and I went, wait a minute, this is true. So... I did have to do that. I had to read the Bible. I had to listen. I had to process it. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes that I went, now I get it. <laughs> now I see. Uh, I, once I was blind, but now I see. Was lost, but now I'm found. Thank God. You know, that's, that's the, the idea there. So um, any other challenging questions for Calvinism, <laughs> for salvation? Okay. Well, not class if we don't have a Kelvin and Hobbes.
Calvin says, do you think God lets us plea bargain? And Hobbes says, I would not. I would worry more about your mom. Because they were playing baseball inside. Um, no, God doesn't let us plea bargain. Um, 